the awards Dame, Tony nominated, critically acclaimed, Oscar winner, and national treasure have all been used to describe tonight's nominees for outstanding performance by an actress in a supporting role. But I say they're simply the best. The nominees are Judy Dench in Chocolat. Marcia Gay Harden in Pollock. Kate Hudson in Almost Famous. Frances McDormand in Almost Famous. Julie Walters in Billy Elliot. Welcome back to the SmackDown, and I'm so excited to introduce this panel to you, and we'll take it in alphabetical order. Um, we have Eric Bloom, who you have read on the film experience before, because he infrequently pops up. Um, he's also a writer-director. Hi, Eric. Hi, Nathaniel. Every word you said is true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm a comedy writer-director, and I am going next week. I'm flying to Budapest to shoot Kevin Hart and Kate Blanchett on a movie they're shooting. Isn't that a weird pairing? Wow. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. On the Eli Roth movie? Yeah, it's called Borderlands. It's kind of based on a video game. Uh, it's kind of like a Guardians of the Galaxy. So they're not lovers, though I so <laughs> want them to. Oh, so you're doing like a little promo piece with them? Yeah, yeah, we're doing some stuff over there, yeah. Great. I'm excited to leave the country for the first time in a long time. Amazing. And then we have award-winning pop culture reporter, Kyle Buchanan. That's me. Thank you for reading that out verbatim like I'd asked you to. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm Kyle. I almost said I, Kyle. Uh, would have lost that award probably if I said it that way. Um, yeah, I'm Kyle Buchanan. I write for the New York Times. I run a column called The Projectionist, and, uh, which covers movies, pop culture, and award season. And, uh, and I have a book coming out. My first book is coming out later this year. It is about the wild two-decade making of Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, if you've ever wanted to read a book about how hard it is to make a movie, you are not going to find a book that lays that out in a way that is harder or in a way that turns out more of a masterpiece than I think this story. Yeah. And your the the piece you did, the oral history of it, was so brilliant. Thank so this, you. Yeah, yeah. This is expounding on that, obviously. Yeah. So there was, you know, back in, what, April of last year, I mean, it's my job to cover movies, but they weren't coming out anymore. So I was like, okay, what can I write about that's pandemic proof? And it hit me that the fifth anniversary then uh, was coming up of Mad Max Fury Road, which a movie I love, you know, just about the best action movie I can name. And I'd heard the craziest, juiciest stories about the making of that movie. And I thought, well, maybe five years on, everybody will feel like looser lips and they'll tell me the real shit. And they did. And they do even more so for the book. So I'm, I can't wait to actually get to talk about some of the stuff that that I know people want to talk about, but I have to just uh, keep my mouth shut until the book comes out. <laughs> I'm very excited to read it. And then we have actor Nicholas D'Agosto, um, who I first fell for in Masters of Sex as Dr. Ethan Haas. I was obsessed with that show, and I literally think everybody on it was brilliant and one of the best ensembles on television at the time. So welcome, Nick. 
Oh, thank you so much. That's sweet of you to say. Yeah, I, uh, that was a raunchy show. That was the raunchiest <laughs> show I've ever been a part of, for sure. <laughs> it was actually, I'll, I'll tell you a real, uh, a, a nice anecdote about it. Um, I suppose it's a piece of trivia. It was, I had just finished shooting the pilot when I met the woman that would become my wife. So, uh, and then the very beginnings of our relationship paralleled the shooting of Masters of Sex, which was, you know, promiscuous to say the least. So, uh, you know, there's no doubt that I married the right woman. Uh, I had found the right woman when she was like entirely supportive of me going into this particularly, um, you know, revealing show. Uh, so love to my wife in many ways. That's just one of them. Um, yeah, I'm an actor. Uh, I Masters of Sex is one of those things. I did Gotham for a little bit. Uh, I played Harvey Dent. I play. I was the lead on a show called Trial and Error uh, on NBC for a couple of seasons, opposite John Lithgow and Kristen Chenoweth. And I've done some other stuff around, you know, along the way. I got my start in a movie called Election, which is actually a particularly interesting little part of my history. I was 17 at the time in Omaha, um, and uh, I run a podcast called God and Other Delicacies which is a one-on-one -on -one podcast about um, exploring God, belief, non-belief, and other delicate subject matter in an open and welcoming environment is exactly what I wrote and I have memorized. And then uh, Eric Bloom, our very own Eric Bloom on this show was one of my guests. And it's, uh, it's a show that comes out of me having been raised in my Catholic faith and I get to explore uh, my transition out you know, my journey, my spiritual journey sort of out of the confines of that. And I explore that with other guests. Um, and it's something that I, I really love. It's a long time, personally, a long time in the making, because it was not an easy thing for me to talk about when I was young. Well, great. Um, thank you for coming so much. And then finally, last but not least, we have Vela Lavelle, who I first fell for on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as the neighbor, Heather, such a gen another genius show. So two, two, I'm very happy that you're both here today. Two of my favorite TV shows ever. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much. I'm also an award-winning culture reporter. I don't know why you didn't <laughs> mention that. <laughs> kind of awkward now. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not. Um, I, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I'm um, currently in between seasons of a new show on NBC called Mr. Mayor starring Ted Danson um, and Holly Hunter, and that's been a blast. And um, I'm so happy to be here and get to get to watch some really great movies and talk with you all. Yeah. Oh, and I did want to mention also, I loved you in The Big Thick. And at my own awards oh, that, that I do every year, I have a category for best limited or cameo appearance. It's for <laughs> actors who have like two or less scenes and you were a nominee at my own award that year. Oh my God. It's, you know, it's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> and, okay. So we're going to jump right in uh, now at the 2000 Oscars. We always go by the film year here. So we're just going to say 2000, even though they took place in 2001. Um, and the Academy invited three regulars uh, back, Judy Dench, Francis McDormand and Julie Walters. <laughs> And um, let's talk about them first. So I want to start with Judy Dench in Chocolat. It was a last minute release. Um, and I personally was in hate with it at the time because you get very into Oscar narratives. And I was rooting for like Billy Elliot and a couple other movies. And then suddenly it came and took the heat away from other movies because it was last minute and the Weinstein Company was pushing it really hard. 
So, where are we with chocolat? <laughs> yeah, I felt the same at that time, and now maybe even in that, like you know, this is a totally inoffensive movie, just an easy thing where your grandma's like, "What should I watch?" and you say, "Chocolat," right? It's made for that. But for a movie that is kind of like preaching this idea of coloring outside the lines and living a more daring life, it's so safe, so just like made to recipe. And you kind of want something that's a little bit wilder than that. I have no objection to the movie, except that it isn't exactly practicing what it preaches. Mm -hmm. I was curious, though, Nick, because of your podcast, um, uh, God and Other Delicacies, what you made of the religious content of this movie, because it sort of makes the religious people the villains, but not really, because toward the end, the priest comes around. Uh, how did you react to that? Yeah, what was interesting, actually, is that I was going to have a separate when you started asking the question, my mind prompted me to how much I enjoyed the Mayan spiritual aspect of it, uh, even though the Christian side is quite presented as the antagonist of the film, or, or you know, the, is the spiritual antagonist of the film. The overarching spiritual narrative is that there is this, you know, there is this moving element uh, that compels people that can hear it to go around and make people's lives better. And so uh, I think, there's, I, I just kind of enjoyed that. The Christian side is like so familiar that it, it's easy to, to just keep hitting that one in the face. I mean, it's very arch, right? The movie is, has a comic book element to it. it. It's a very, it's so clear who's the villain and it's so clear who the winner is, or the, you know, the, the hero is. Um, but at the same time, I mean, like, I don't mind the Manichaean nature of that. I like the kind of, you know, it's clear, and then you get to watch Johnny Depp look the best like he can look. He's so good looking. <laughs> He's amazing, and everybody is just so. There's a sensuality to the shock, to the chocolate. You know, I, I enjoyed it, uh, but I'm not also going to take on um, what Kyle was saying either. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with that. But I, I'm happy to be, you know, I'm happy to take the sugar and go for the ride. Yeah. Yes, I'll stick up for it as well. That's exactly how I felt. It. I thought it, like, I mean, it is what it is. It's not a great movie or anything, but I'm not going to die on that hill defending it either. But um, I thought it aged because it is a fable, and it unapologetically is a fable, which I appreciate. Like, it starts out with the narration and, the, you know, and it sets it up. And personally, and this might be a, a controversial thing to say, but I thought it aged better than Almost Famous rewatching it personally so um this will be a good uh, conversation <laughs> yeah which i was really surprised by but um yeah i chocolate is today what it was then uh you know could it have been up for best picture no but juliette binoche can carry me through a lot of baloney and just her face is just oh so amazing so i wasn't mad at it yeah I, I did like, you know, looking at back on it from the acting perspective, like some of the performances are very broad in the movie, but I was surprised this time <laughs> to put it lightly, but I was surprised this time at, at, at Judy Dench. Cause I thought it was, you know, I remembered it as this like phoned in thing, but uh, Bella, I really loved what you said about her physicality 
And I want to congratulate you because you're the first person who's ever mentioned Cats the Musical in the context of the SmackDown, and you're right on. <laughs> you have to. You have to. Yeah, I mean, I was saying, I think I said that, like, I feel like I remember, well, first of all, I, look, all this will be the hill that I die on because I love chocolate so much. But I just remember when it came out and even rewatching it, you think Judy Dench is like 120 years old. Like you're literally like this woman is about to just keel over. And I feel like she looks older than she did in Cats. <laughs> I literally was like, in Cats, she's just like wearing a unitard and living her best life. And, I, and like, this was actually 20 years ago and she's somehow, it's just her physicality. Like you feel the, you feel the diabetes. You just feel it. Um, but yeah, just to, just to, um, piggyback off of that, um, about the, the broad acting, I just really appreciated watching this time around that everyone has slightly different accents. I don't know if you guys... Can we talk about that? that for a second? First of <laughs> I all, loved it. it's, I loved it's it. always baffled me that when Hollywood movies are set in France, that they yeah. kind of let you just do a British accent. The French accent <laughs> is wonderful. We revere the French accent and people know it. It, it can't be mm -hmm. that difficult. At least give it the old college try. Some people were doing French and you've got <laughs> Julia Binoche right there. Yeah. So everybody else, I mean, it's, right it's a tricky... It's a tricky yardstick to be measuring every co-star against, but you kind of can't help it. Wait, so Bella, <laughs> rate, rate, the, uh, rate the accent. <laughs> rate the accent. Oh, my God. Okay, well, definitely, okay, definitely, like, Judy Dench, love her, but, like, yeah, not sure, not, not sure. Not French. Not sure where she's from. Um, Carrie Ann Moss. She bought a macaroon in London once. She definitely. And, and she, That's where she's from. Yeah, she and she and she ordered it in French, and it went great. And that was the end of that. I feel like Carrie Ann Moss just drops it completely at one point, right? Like at the end, she's just like, "How dare you, mother?" And you're like, "Definitely American." Um, and then Alfred Molina, I'm not sure, is doing a French accent at all, right? Oh. I don't know. All of it was kind of, but you know, I just give them all a pass because they just, it makes me feel so good. So at a certain point, I'm just like, whatever, it's just general France, general, general Europe. Can I, can I say that um, I really think Lena Olin should have been nominated instead of Judy Dench. So I wrote it. that exact thing in my I, thing. So it's, it's in mine as well. So that'll be, that'll be something that the SmackDown is pounding. Okay, good. Yes, I mean, if you're going to nominate somebody from this movie, uh, again, you know, I was talking earlier about sort of coloring outside the lines and the way that she has this sort of like wild-eyed fervor to everything she's doing, even when that character becomes like a little bit more conventional, you can't take your eyes off her. And that's something to be said when she's sharing all of, almost all of her scenes with Juliette Binoche. You know, you're constantly mm. looking at Lena Olin to just, you know, track everything that's going on in her mind, in her head in her eyes. She's so really fun. interesting. It's so fun to see them together after Unbearable Languages being, of course, which had been like 12 years earlier. And they have such an intimate sort of connection because of that movie, I think. And it shows. Yeah. And, and like what you were saying about her wild eyed, it's a really cohesive performance too, in a movie that doesn't really call for a lot of like character arcs, but she has like the largest arc in the movie. And yet, it totally coheres. Like she feels like the exact same person, only a happier person in the yeah, back I mean, half I of the movie. I totally agree that um, 
as Kyle mentioned, her more conventional self comes out as she is unburdened by this, you know, her previous marriage or relationship. But that makes for such an extraordinary and bright turn to the film. I mean, she's one of the people that you, you track Juliette Binoche's effect on the town, at least I did mostly track it through Lena Olin. And I just thought it was such a, I, I mean, it just felt to me like Judy Dench got the nomination because of name, but also because she played like a body person, you know, like she kind of, she was playing beneath her typically royal noble roots, I suppose. And so that's what was particularly interesting to the Academy in that regard. It wasn't, I mean, I wrote, you know, Judy Dench is like nothing to take away from that performance. She's so, she's so magnificent, but I just, she wasn't given nearly as much in the script as Lena Olin and you know, Olin knocked it out of the park. And even stuff that's not in the script. I mean, watching it this, this second time, I felt like there was a little bit of an erotic charge between her and Juliet. Like they know they don't pay it off, but she's, she's giving that much. She's that interesting in her interpretation of the character that she's not just playing only one thing. And that makes her really interesting to watch because it is kind of like A to B journeys for so many of those characters and the actors. They're like, they show up, they do what they're supposed to do. And she's giving it so many intriguing directions that it could have gone. And it just feels fuller because of that. But not, but not taking you out of the movie either, because that's, I think that's the danger for actors sometimes if they're doing a lot more than the script is calling for is that it can become distracting because they're in a different movie. Mm-hmm. But it still felt like she was in that movie. So, yeah, I also really liked her in that. Lena Olin fan club assembled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all here. <laughs> it's about time she got what she deserved. And she could have been a return nominee as well, like um, because she had been up before for Enemies of Love Story, which she's great in. Also, well, do we think that part of the reason Judy Dench got this nomination is because she had just won for Shakespeare in Love two years earlier? It's kind of like the definition of an afterglow performance, right? Where they're like, "Yes, we love you. Mm-hmm. Hop right in." Well, Here's I have to go and look at um, she actually Judy Dench won the SAG Award for Chocolat. Re- I had to go and what? look at it. She won Best Supporting <laughs> Act that year. Wow! I had to go because I was like, "Who won the SAG?" And I was like. Oh, wow. I just think people were so in love with Judy Dench, particularly in that window of time that she, you know, she was in like Meryl mode of kind of like, we love her. So I think it was um, just an automatic, like her, I mean, again, we all liked her in the movie, obviously, but like mm-hmm. she shouldn't have been winning the top award of the year in that category. Yeah. And she did. It's one of those things where I was actually surprised when we got the list and she was, I mean, and I love this movie. I love her in this movie, but it, it was one of those things like, oh, I didn't realize she was nominated. Okay. It does it's make you kind of look at it in a different way. Right. Exactly. Yes. I thought several of the nominees this year that we're about to discuss. We're generous. Generous. <laughs> generous. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's move on. Speaking of generous, let's move on to Almost Famous, which seems to love all of its characters. Uh, so I think it's being very generous with everybody, um, including Francis McDormand, who has the least amount of screen time of any of the people people we're discussing. And as Eric, you pointed out in your write-up, she's on the phone for almost every scene. Best performance opposite of oh phone. Yeah. Is that a category? Right. Yes, the, the Laura Linney Memorial Award. <laughs> yeah. She Literally probably 80% of her scenes are on the phone. <laughs> 
I think she has just a couple of scenes with another actor. So I don't know. Eric, you said that you thought this movie didn't age well. What did you think of it when it came out and how did you feel about it now? Loved it. Loved it when it came out. I remember thinking like it's flawed, but I thought it really didn't age well. I think that whole sort of Cameron Mm -hmm. Crowe thing that he does, it's kind of like James L. Brooks, right? It's that sort of like elevated sitcom, but like artfully, you know, elevated where the acting is like, nobody's a real person and they all say the things that you wish you would say in that moment. Like, you know, it's all that sort of, that, that sensibility that's very specific. And I think now I just really struggled with how nobody felt like a real person. They all felt like movie characters. They all talked like movie characters. Um, There's also extraordinary moments in Almost Famous and all the ones that are so personal to him. There's wonderful things about it for sure. But I just thought it didn't age well. It felt very, and again, the sort of, We'll get there, Kate Hudson, with kind of like manic, dreamy, pixie girl. Do you know what I mean? That like all those white guy filmmakers for 15 years, that was the only role any actress age 20 to 30 ever got to play. <laughs> and it was just, it fe- you feel it now. I felt it. And it just, it just felt like a construction of, of falsities to me. Sorry. Yeah, I am going to say the reverse of this. I did not like it when it came out. And I liked it so much more now, 20 years later. There you go. Um, I don't know why I was uh, ready for it this time, but I like uh, Eric, one of the things you said about um, Kate's performance that you felt it was played out rather than lived in, which just goes to what you're saying about they're all movie characters. But I thought that was the whole point of her character that she hadn't lived, that she, she was imagining who she wanted to be and trying to create it. So I I was very surprised by her in this time around because at the time I thought, oh, it's just, you know, it's the starlet performance that gets nominated. Like I didn't think that highly of it at the time, but now, I mean, there's things I definitely still don't like about the movie. Like I think the plane scene makes me so crazy. I just hate that scene <laughs> when the plane's going to crash, which other, oh, I know other people love that like, scene. I'm gay joke. Yeah, but just how broad that scene is, you know. And then yeah. in the Rolling Stone office later, when you the only sentence you hear from from Williams' article is, "I'm in a plane and we're all about to die," and that's like the lead for the article. And you mm-hmm. you're told over and over he's a good writer, and I'm like, that does that sounds like a weak a weak entry point to that article. I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't I didn't respond well to it. Uh, but I, the, I I responded a lot better to Kate Kate Hudson this time, and I just thought the movie was more interesting than I had remembered because I remembered it as being sort of just all nostalgia, all happy, but it has lots of interesting side notes. I think. So I'll, I'll hop in because I want to come clean about something. Like I've been uh, not watching barely any movies for a while. I have a four-year-old son, and I'm not joking when I say I'm watching almost nothing. Like if you ask me. What have I seen of the Academy Award nominated films the last three years? I'd be like, probably zero. Um, and I didn't watch almost any of these films before this SmackDown. I had not seen any of them. So oh, wow. the only one I'd seen was Solo. So I saw Chocolat for the first time. I saw Almost Famous for the first time. And, uh, and so 
And also, I've, a teacher once told me that um, like it's better to like things than to not like things. And I'm one of these people that likes things um, just because he's like, look, because he's one of these people that doesn't like things by nature. He's just a harsher critic. And uh, and I'm not by nature. I want to find what I like. And he's like, look, you're a happy. You enjoy things more than I do. And so I wish that I enjoyed them as much as you. And I'm just going to say what's interesting to me, Eric, about what you said is I wonder if it's a. Um, your situation between Chocolat and Almost Famous has something to do with a matter of expectations, because to me, they're both kind of fable-esque, right? Like one of the things about Almost Famous is that, I, you know, I, I got to the end of it and I had this such a feel-good energy, right? Everybody gets tied up. They're all pretty much where they're supposed to be. No one dies. Like the love that exists is the real love that was dependable between family and the love that doesn't exist was the stuff that was fleeting and shouldn't have existed. And the people that are, are going the directions they're supposed to go, it's like felt like chocolate in that way to me, you know? Um, and, uh, but Almost Famous had so much coming into it that, uh, you know, I actually thought to, to reveal something that I wrote about Kate Hudson's performance was I was expecting her performance to be crappy. I, I had, just because I assumed that the movie was so beloved that they were just throwing out nominations for this thing. You know, two nominations from the same film. I thought, you gotta be kidding me. There's no reason that Kate Hudson and Frances McDormand would be nominated next to each other from the same film. That seems ridiculous. But I totally bought her like commitment to the, to the spirit guardian angel of this character. I, I totally, I, she felt like she kept winning for me and um, Francis McDormand kept uh, winning for me too. Neither of them I thought uh, were the standouts of this list, but from my perspective, but uh, I thought inside this fable world, I thought they both really, you know, I loved them both. So that's my side of it. I feel like I have to follow that because I feel the same way, Nick. Like I am, I am just someone who is like, I can't, I, I was not born to be a critic. Like, I'm just like, good job. You were up there. <laughs> right. You did it. And, um, and I, then I have to, the group, right? <laughs> I know I'm like, uh, of course, like, um, but yeah, like also just spoiler alert, like, like, yeah, three of these films were just like, are my total feel good, like nostalgia movie so I totally have that expectation or that kind of remembrance of these films and what it felt like when I was you know whatever like 15 and I was watching them and I was just like blown away by them but um I have to say yeah re-watching it I kind of I was ready for Kate's performance to to feel a little dated and manic pixie dream girl-esque and I am like, I, I'm giving it all to Kate. Like, I really, like, I was really surprised, but I, I don't necessarily think, I, first of all, I think this is Kate's best work, <laughs> just hands down. I think this is also, like, one of those performances in, in acting school. I had a teacher that would say, um, you know, sometimes you need technique. Like, sometimes you're not going to understand what's on the page. You're going to need technique. You're going to need, the, you're going to need, you know, text work. You're going to need all of this stuff. And sometimes, you don't need anything. It just comes to you. And that's how I feel about her performance. I feel like the channels were just open and she's just like, I don't even think this is a crafted performance. I think it's just works. It's just like something is working with her and it doesn't feel fake to me and it doesn't feel forced to me. And I don't know. It's just, it's kind of really, I just, I kept writing iconic. It's just an iconic role in in movies I mean even like her face is on the poster with those glasses and 
the fur coat and like I just think that I don't know I just I'm really handing it to her like 20 years later I'm like yeah no that was you did that. <laughs> I think she's the one who really feels rooted in the story that's being told. Like, even if you yeah. agree with Eric, and I kind of do, and I, I saw a little bit more of this this time around, where I felt like the lines felt more crafted to be capital L lines, and some of the performances felt a little, like, all flash, and something underneath wasn't quite right. Kate's works and and if that character is gesturing at being something that she isn't that suits the character and it also honestly suits the star casting because you cast Goldie Hawn's daughter as somebody who's playing like a 70s flower child so the idea that she's growing into this is perfect and irresistible in a way that I would argue the other roles aren't and so that only sort of magnifies how perfectly cast she is and to sort of wrap it back around to Frances McDormand, and honestly, even like Billy Crudup, it's very hard for me. Sometimes, sometimes you get the exact cast you're supposed to have. And I would argue, I, I know that people who love this movie and they are legion would argue it's the exact right cast. But when I hear that Brad Pitt was supposed to play Billy Crudup's character <gasps> and that he wanted Meryl for Frances McDormand, those, those roles to me are very written for those two people and I don't feel that they're completely reconceived to play to the strengths of Crudup and McDormand. Like, wow, I didn't of, know that. Yeah. In the case of Frances McDormand, like, I buy so much about that character. Definitely, you cast Frances McDormand as a woman with, like, an intense worldview. I buy that. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of like the key joke of that character, which is that she's terrified of drugs. She's terrified that her family will experience drug culture. I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry, but Frances McDormand is our only three-time Oscar winner who's appeared on the cover of High Times holding a lit (laughs) joint, you know? Like, I kind of don't ever buy Frances McDormand as somebody who's scared of the reefer. I just don't. So I, I, I unfortunately could not go there. And then with the Billy Crudup of it all, I think that's an actor who's gotten so much more interesting as he's aged. And there's something that's sort of intriguingly recessive about him, but he's come up with active ways to play that. Definitely like on the morning show where he's just an agent of chaos. Here, you can tell that they wrote it for somebody as sort of like laconic. You go to him as Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt can be doing nothing, trying to do nothing. And magnetizes. And you go to him. Billy Crudup at this era buried under that mustache I don't necessarily feel, listen, the mustache, the mustache is like, what can I do to sabotage these cheekbones? And it almost gets there. Um, So to me, it's not giving star in the way that Brad Pitt would have. It's giving actor. Um, But yeah, Yeah. so, so the fact that Kate Hudson is, you know, throwing these star beams at somebody who isn't necessarily volleying them back I mean, it creates an interesting dynamic in that movie that maybe you're like, oh, sure, this, this, this is what it's supposed to be about, but I don't think it quite is. And again, so that just makes me feel like Kate Hudson is the element of perfect casting in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the Billy Crudup thing to an extent, but I, and I remember stories of his career at the time because he was really actually actively resisting stardom at that time. 
like he was turning down roles and because if he thought they were too big and mainstream i remember there was some articles about him famously saying no to things and um because everybody was like wanting to prep him to be like the next big thing so that sort of reticence that you're saying comes off as his like his recessive traits as an actor so it does create like sort of a tension with that performance but i also think it's interesting in that movie so which is where i don't totally don't quite agree with you in that the the band themselves is having such a hard time negotiating their fame that i think it sort of works no you can say that that subtext becomes text yeah within certainly within like how that career is presented like is this a band that would ever become that big you can't quite mm. tell i mean the impression you get is like not really you know um but at the same time for the romantic uh, element of him and Kate and certainly the romantic triangle as, as far as they present one to work I kind of do feel like he needs to be able to match her star power otherwise it throws the whole thing out of whack she's so much more of a superstar than him she is giving you like she could just say I'm Janis Joplin and you'd believe it <laughs> that yeah. it kind of makes you feel like the movie should be everyone in the movie should be chasing her and that maybe they ultimately do not in the story but certainly like if you look at the poster for it it's Kate Hudson's face mm -hmm. it's saying that the soul of this movie is Kate Hudson and I would agree I would argue though quickly and Kyle I love your points because I, and I think that they are true but just like our relationship with our parents many truths can exist in the same space right so I think that in addition to your truth I think Billy Crudup <laughs> does the most sophisticated and interesting job in taking that movie dialogue and a movie character. He was the most real flesh and blood human character to me in that movie. He felt like he really was, in addition to being Cameron Crowe's idealized version of that person, he also really was a real person. Where like, you know, Francis McDormand, that character, as I wrote in my thing, he wants you to like think she's tough and really difficult, but you gotta love her every second, right? <laughs> like it's so, I just thought it was so kind of like soft. And I don't know, I was very, I wanted to love it. I was so surprised. And I do think, again, as I wrote in my bit, that I think both Kate Hudson and Francis McDormand absolutely give Cameron Crowe what he wants in that movie like he they deliver his the performance he wanted for sure and they're both they have their magic on camera i mean again this is what's funny about you know talking about this even the weaker performances i mean they're wonderful actors yeah they're so talented you know that's not the question but yeah, um, i mean i just I, thought I, yeah I, I like what what vela was uh what vela you said about that francis's performance would be a caricature in lesser hands and and that you called her a complex oddball. And I, I remember there's one line in it where like, I don't know, if, it's not her last line in the movie, but where she's teaching her class and she's like, my child has been kidnapped by rock stars. And yeah. it's just so, <laughs> it's such a bizarre moment, a bizarre line, but it's like, because Francis is such like a natural on screen, like you sort of buy it, even though that's one of those lines that Eric, what you're saying, where it's like a hundred percent scripted. I, I, I think you can really see the sort of like in-between phase of Cameron Crowe coming off Jerry Maguire, which had all of these famous lines that worked. Mm. 
and him trying to recapture that to like lesser effect in subsequent movies like that that's a great line in the way that she delivers it even if again i'm only 80 percent buying the truth of that moment um this and i i am so trepidatious to even wade into these waters because i guarantee 50 percent of the people who are going to listen to this podcast are like Almost Famous is one of my favorite movies. I can't wait to hear them talk, <laughs> talk about it. And now here I am saying that like one of the key lines of this movie, I don't think is an actual statement, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs saying the only true currency we have in this world is what we share with each other when we're uncool. That is phrased like a sentence that makes sense. Uh, it is delivered like it's a key line from the movie, but I don't, think that there's anything in that package uh, and certainly nothing to the degree that is sort of borne out by what Crow was interested in vis-a-vis Kate Hudson and Billy Crudup and their effect on Patrick Fugit. Yeah, because that's like playing when you're very cool. I keep turning that line over in my head and I'm like, oh, you almost sold me on that, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that is, you know, <laughs> how great you are. And, you know, you listen to that and you're like, profound, profound. But then I'm like, wait, but but that doesn't actually <laughs> doesn't make sense. Mean anything. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the the two that I think got in general the best reviews from the panel. Um, Julie Walters uh, in Billy Elliot. Um, Nick, I think you said that you didn't buy the jaded part of her performance. Yeah, apparently I'm going to be alone on that, judging by the way you went. <laughs> In. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. I uh, What did I write? I wrote that I think the story wanted me to feel a deeper sense of bitterness emanating from her, a discontentedness. But um, I felt like that was the story giving me that more than her. I felt like she was, this is an unfair thing to say. I think American actors, uh, you know, when we want to feel like we I feel like when I was young and I wanted to sound like I was saying something really smart that I would be like British actors are a little too like um, they're not ugly and dirty enough. They're a little too like refined and choreographed and uh, they've made their choices and you see their choices on the screen. And I don't think that's true in a generic sense or in a general sense. That's obviously boneheaded childishness. But I do, think that Ju- I do think that she was kind of trying to show me that at the beginning, and I never really bought it. I never really felt like, I felt like when she would shout, it's ridiculous or something, it kind of didn't feel connected to the moment. I felt there was a lot of real performances in that film. I loved that movie, another movie I'd never seen. And that movie was effing great. But I felt like she was great, but I, I just didn't feel like that aspect of her was uh really kind of got me into a place where i saw her turn in a way that that she changed in some way or you know i just felt like she was best in the car you know she's charming she's funny she's optimistic she's kind of got a wicked you know grin about the sexual comment stuff like that stuff great but uh you know i i i just didn't and it was another one of these performances where i was like wow i i I don't feel like she really jumped off the, the screen for me to get a nomination. Well, I, I think that one thing we can all probably agree on about her is the incredible prop work 
think a couple of you mentioned her cigarette. <laughs> I mean, I also I loved how like in um the one uh the one scene where um ugh, I also can't get through this. I mean, I by the end of this movie, I was just covered in tears. Like this movie makes me sob like no other movie. It's it, I don't know. It's it's something like in the water. I'm just like by the end just a mess, but the scene where he reads her the letter from his mom um in the boxing ring and did you notice that there was just an ashtray there and i just like loved imagining her being like <laughs> i can't do an irish accent i'm sorry <laughs> English accent. I'm do it. but we're sh- i just picture her being just like pretend it shocks a lot bella it's okay you don't have <laughs> yeah. to do it, <laughs> i should feel empowered <laughs> i just loved her being like there's gonna need to be an ashtray here because i'm gonna need to gonna need to add i was like why would there be an ashtray in a boxing ring like it doesn't make sense but you you just know that there's probably ashtrays all around the set when she's on set because they're like julie's doing her she's got a prop work (laughs) like that cigarette was just an extension of her hand and i loved it so much i guess since i'm talking i'll i love i i think her performance in this is so incredible and i think it's actually what's interesting what you're saying Nick is like um you know she didn't jump out and to me that's kind of the power of this is I think she's really understated actually in the movie like she's the catalyst for the whole movie and I just I think that you don't question that she is this dance teacher and that she's just living this life and I think you feel this joy when like that 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 beautiful scene when they're dancing together um in the gym you just feel that kind of joy and happiness coming from her. And then, oh, the scene that like kills me at the end when he's like, oh, I'm going to do my terrible accent. He's like, I'll miss you. And she's like, no, you won't. And then she just turns around. Like, I just think that's such a beautiful scene of like what, what her character is, which is just this teacher that is like had a little bit of a, her fire reignited. And then her student is going to leave. And she's just like, you won't miss me. It's fine. And there's something in that her performance that just, I think is really remarkable. And it's not, she, she stays in her lane in the movie. I don't think she tries to do too much or, or kind of bleed out. And she's just like there and direct. And I think it's, I think it's really masterful. As they would say in shock a lot, j'agree. I just, I think so too. I think she doesn't lean too hard into the like bitter thing um i liked kind of how subtle she kept it but that said i cannot billy elliott watching it again and i hadn't seen him in a good 10 years every single decision stephen daldry makes is the right one every single one he just oh. it's so crazy how and like to me it's one of those things you learn in like poetry writing class when they're like don't be sentimental be filled with sentiment and that to mm-hmm. me like billy elliot is the definition of that because there's so many moments that like are just so close to being sentimental but there's just so much love like stephen Daldry has so much love for those characters and those actors in that world that it just always feels so tenderly caressed without ever going squishy and I, I literally had like a baby pool of tears. Like, <laughs> yes. It was, I think that movie is stunning. And I, what she does with Jamie Bell is crazy. And well, I, think, I was just going to say, I, Jamie Bell is like one of the best child performances oh, ever. Agreed. Like, I remember being so upset he was not nominated that year <laughs> for best actor. Um, because, if it, because if it had been a little girl, she would have been nominated. Yeah, but best actor, they want you to be older. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Honestly, I think what's interesting about this performance is that I agree with everything Eric, Bella and Nick have said. And I think they're all sort of copacetic in a weird way. Um, but to bounce off something Eric said about uh, Stephen Daldry making all the right directorial choices, I think it's important to note that there are a lot of directorial choices in this movie, that there is a lot of music, that the camera is always moving, that it is cut within an inch of its life. Like it's, it, it, it was way more soaked in just soundtrack choices than I even remember it being. Um, and so what's interesting about Julie Walters in this movie is that in a film full of straight lines, she's the performance and the way the performance is presented is the rare squiggle where like, instead of giving you everything that you think you're gonna get in the most like marvelous punchy fashion, they parcel out even something as simple as the backstory for that character, why she is the way she is, what sort of is fueling her, what motivates her. She doesn't get to say any of it. It's all given to the little girl, the, the daughter, right? And she, and it's a very funny scene the way the daughter is like, yeah, you know, she's, um, you know, do the what? accent. Do the accent. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna carry in Moss this one and Mom's just speak like happy. an American. Yeah, me mom's so having like... an affair. Yeah, <laughs> me dad's having an affair. I yeah. think when little girls like, I can show you me Fanny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's Amazing. great about that is, you know, you kind of keep waiting for her completely, as Nick said, because I hadn't seen the movie since it first came out, so I, a lot of it was sort of being you know, freshly excavated again from me. You keep waiting for her to integrate what you've learned into her performance, because in a normal movie, you'd probably have her say that in the car at some point to him. You wouldn't rob like your key actress in the film of like kind of the raison d'etre, like, you know, the, the reason for her being the way that she is. And it's very flinty the way she does and doesn't incorporate that. I feel like she incorporates it into her marvelous cigarette acting, and she doesn't let you see it because she would never let Billy see it. So it's undergirding what you think of her, what you learn of her, you're learning something illicit that you'd never otherwise know, almost a peek into that diary, but it's very skillful of the performance and the film, I think, that, you, that she doesn't let you or Billy see it until the last scene, the last scene where you're shocked that she would behave this way, that she would not want to share into this victory. And it's because he's moving on, reminds her that she is stuck. And the only thing that can explain this surprise is what you learned that she doesn't even know that Billy knows. And, right. you know, Billy doesn't know how to integrate that into what he knows yet as a child, but the audience does. And I really do appreciate that the movie is letting us add all that up together. And I, totally understand if it might not completely add up because the rest of the movie is very like it's not letting you add it up it is taking your hand and your pencil <laughs> and it is drawing for you and you're loving it because it's so skillful but that's the sort of rare example of you've kind of got to do the work whether you're inclined or not to make all of those pieces fit together i love what you're saying oh no you go you go I'm sorry, Vela. I just I just want to clarify uh, that I love what you said there, and you're bringing out, uh, you're helping me um, understand what I think is my criticism, is that I want to see Julie in the same place at the end at the beginning. And I'll be honest, I don't, 
I, this feels crazy to say with all of you loving it as much as you have. I didn't really, I wasn't really all that impressed with the cigarette stuff. I felt like it was, <laughs> it was like, I have to, I have to choreograph, choreograph this with the, with the girl who's dancing next to me to be able to pick this up at exactly the right time. That is not believable to me at all. That took me out of it. Like she wouldn't do, that seems so like a choice that she loved and she was going to definitely make work. And I tell you, if you watch that scene again, you will watch that it is not flawlessly done. <laughs> it, it wasn't, it wasn't an Olympic gold medal move. And, and I, and also I, I agree that I love that, you know, her not showing that to Billy, but we need to see her not caring about Billy before Billy starts making her care about him. At the beginning, like in that car where she's driving her daughter home and she sees him on the side of the road, she wants the 50 pence back or whatever. I felt like I already saw that wicked smile in her eye. You know, like that wicked smile and the glint in her eye, like Billy's gonna be something. And I feel like we need to see her not, we need to see her that cold, dead, dead face, that we get at the end at the beginning. And I just don't feel like she entered, mm. that I entered into her performance in that way. <sighs> Soapbox, I'm kicking it out from under my feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this is fun, right? It's just fun to hear smart people talk about the subtlety, you know, like the subtleties and many things can be true together. Yeah. That's why I love doing these. And I um, like that that these five, out of these five, I don't think there's any outrageously bad, what were no. they thinking performance. Yeah. Like, yeah. even if it doesn't no. click for you, and I don't think anything has 100% clicked for all five of us, it's kind of interesting to tease out where it, where it grabs us and where it doesn't. Yeah. Or that, or that one person's, like, the thing with, with, with Julie is, like, the best part of it for some of us is Nick's least favorite part of it. And I think that happens. Yeah. I mean, and, and the same thing is true of Kate Hudson with Eric. Your reservations are exactly what the other people the rest of us loved about it. (laughs) It's fascinating. So uh, Marsha Gay Harden won the Oscar. um, So we have to talk Pollock um, to close out the discussion. Um, I think she's a lead. So that's (laughs) my... What a thrill. (laughs) (laughs) What a thrill. Her her famous Oscar speech. Um, I think she's a lead. And I know, Avella, you do too. Um, So that was my objection to it at the time. But I was still very happy for her to win because it's a great performance. Um, later on, I I became much more upset about supporting or about leading performances in supporting because now it happens so often it's just ridiculous. Um, but at the time, I was thrilled because it's a really strong performance. Um, can I can I just ask you guys? Because I wrote that as well. I I said I wonder if she should have been nominated in the leading actress category. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has already told you now three times that I'm not <laughs> really good at assessing this stuff, will you all tell me how do you define a leading well, actress and a supporting actress or or actor? Like what separates them? It's like it's not only protagonists make it as leading act leading actors, right? I mean, this felt like I loved her performance too, but it felt like unfair to put the amount of work she was given up against some of these other actors. Nick, you're I mean, adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my interpretation is that, and please tell me if I'm wrong, because maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, is that it's a total political move by the, um, the whoever's producing the studios, the net, you know, whatever, whoever is the producer, they think that maybe the person is doesn't have the track record, doesn't have the star power to win in the best actor or actress category. 
So they put a leading performance in the supporting actor category because they think they have a better chance of winning. And I feel the same way. I just feel it's kind of like a pet peeve of mine because I think it's a total manipulation of the viewers because we're, we're literally equating someone with a full arc and who's in every scene to someone who maybe is in, you know, a quarter of the movie. But so I would say to defend the supporting thing for her in this case is her, Marsha Gay Harden does not have one scene out, without Ed Harris in the entire movie. Not one. We never leave her to see her have a meeting about her artwork or about anything else. She is there to support him and that arc and every journey. I think Marsha Gay Harden's performance is so fucking great that she finds an arc that the script is not giving her um <laughs> but she really is so great at finding where she, calibrating where she is at every moment but that's why i i argue back on the supporting thing because the film never like it's ed harris as a director is always concerned about her and i noticed how many reaction shots at certain moments he gives her like at the, when at the beginning when he says you're a great woman painter and you see that shot from her on how she feels about that so you that tells you that she knows in that time in the 40s she was always going to be limited as an artist she was never going to make it like a man was going to make it and that's part of her decision to support him and like, it's so smartly done, I think, but I, I think that she still is supporting, even though she has a lot of time. Yeah, she has like 40 minutes in the movie where, you know, Frances McDormand has 15, um, but I don't think it's just time. I think that it's a two lead performance when you're, the film is following both characters equally and the film isn't following her character, in my opinion. Well, I, I definitely agree with Nathaniel, who always sort of fights the good fight when it comes to supporting <laughs> versus lead. And what I think is, I mean, I could really just go on and on and on about this performance, I which I love. But I think what's kind of masterful and surprising about it is that you definitely walk into it expecting it to be a supporting performance. You know, you've seen these great man biopics and there's always uh, a patient but reaches her limit wife. Uh, that's there to sort of like console and provide the shoulder and occasionally henpeck. And, you know, it's all secondary to the, the man. And you'd absolutely expect that given that Ed Harris is directing and starring. You know, this is a star vehicle for him. He's playing a great man. You would, it, you would go in expecting the directorial equivalent of a selfie, you know? <laughs> and what's so wonderful about this movie and about him as a director is you can tell that he knew what he had in Marsha Gay Harden and he is so generous. Uh, be of him, uh, above and beyond even the fact that what emerges sort of of their dynamic is that really like he would have been nothing if she weren't like just, not just making it work personally between the two of them, but selling him professionally too. She was the only one who had her shit together enough to be able to do that. So by the end of this movie, I really do think it is her story to the point where even though you don't see her on screen for what the last 10 minutes or so, she gets the last title card. Yeah. It is about her arc. Because and, yeah, I know. and what's fascinating about it, and again, this is a, a movie about a great man written by two women, uh, is that I came away from that movie 
feeling less about Pollock per se, or, or less of a like, you know, I learned everything I needed to know that a Wikipedia profile would tell me, and more about what's so punishing about being in that sort of like black hole charisma space with someone you're in a relationship with. That to me is what the movie is actually about. And that's why I think it's her movie and that last title card where you feel triumphant for her that she's free of him <laughs> just reinforces. And that she gets and 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 that she ran his estate because she really her whole career was subsumed purposefully, maybe because she was a realist also. Um, but and but the thing that I really cherish about her performance above and beyond that she the emotional tracking of it. Um, which is incredible because it's not all in the script um is is just like the little touches she does that you that let you know that she's like a diehard fan of him um so like like when he when she realizes he's finished the mural and you get that glimpse of excitement on her face that she gets to look she gets to be the first person to look at it so it's like it's like the little tiny things that doesn't don't even have dialogue that that I can understand why she was so devoted to him because she really sells it as not just that she's a, a, a smart, you know, person with good taste, but that she, that she just absolutely hundred percent believes in him, which I think is interesting because it sets her up to be this always secondary. I, yeah, great performance. Oh yeah. I, there's a lot I could say. I, I just am so behind what everybody else is saying. I'm uh, so, so as not to be redundant, I want to mention this one thing. Uh, and I'm sure Eric, I know, has an acting background. Vela, obviously. Uh, I don't know about you, Kyle, and Nathaniel, if you ever spent time acting. But one of the um, things that just jumps out so much to me in this movie is, so I, I primarily adhere to like a Meisner training as my primary technique. And so we spent just years in knock on the door. Just you'd knock on the door. Somebody's doing an activity inside and somebody knocks on the door and walks in with a different intention and you both try to figure it out together. And that is just this scene over and over and this movie over and over and over again is the knock on the door, the knock on the door. Marsha Gay Harden knocks on the door, that's how you meet her when she enters. You know, the, the, the walk into the room and it's like, I want a baby, boom, this like full twist. Like he comes home after she's found the thing and it's laying there at the end, like, you know, she left it in the car. It's the knock on the door. He walks into the room. He's coming from the other place. She's holding on to her intention. Like it's acting scene after acting scene. It's like acting class, acting class, acting class, nonstop. And it's not to, not to demean the film's uh, directorial flourishes. You know, it's not to say that it's just a, a theater piece put to film, but it's over and over and over again, these, the core fundamentals of acting. And, it, and you just see them just fucking nailing it every time. I mean, her, I need, I need, I need turn is, that's like, you give her the award for that because it is so good and it's such a 180. And uh, yeah, man, it was a beautiful watch. And quickly, cause I would hear what Vela has to say, but to the point where by the end of the movie, when they had their last big scene, when she, it, it, they, they're such brilliant actors that it verges on the comic. You know, they've been doing that fight for so long. So that final scene where she's like, you are killing me, you are killing me. And it like, almost it's like Virginia Woolf spoof but like they're not playing it comically but they've just been having that fight for so long that it's almost a parody of itself now and that they're willing to go that far to push it into the like almost comic I think is amazing 
Yeah, I thought I thought she was incredible. I think I'm um, maybe I'm the only one. The movie as a whole did not do it for me. And maybe I'm maybe it's like the cheese stands alone here, but I just like I don't know, like the movie didn't move me for whatever reason. Um I don't know if it's just because I like um I don't know, I don't have like a, a visceral relationship with Jackson Pollock, so I just wasn't like as it wasn't emotional for me. But I did so so for that reason it kind of took me out a little bit um just because I wasn't as invested in like is Pollock gonna make it I was like well I fit like I like lo love I really did love her performance but I just like the line when, when after he like figures out how to drop paint and it I was like I was predicting that moment too I was like he's gonna drop it and then be like oh genius and he did that <laughs> And then when she walked in and said, you've done it, Pollock, you've cracked it wide open. I was like, bad line. Really? No, really? but that's to me, again, that's, <laughs> that's one of the things that makes her so good in this because you're exactly right, Bella. And I don't know if any of you have seen the trailer for this movie, but it, mm -hmm. it's, it feels like a biopic parody trailer because they pick <laughs> all of those lines and out of context, you're just like, Right. Truly, they, maybe they just shot two and a half minutes and they made a trailer. Um, <laughs> right. But what's so good about right. Marsha Gay Harden, and I think I, I really noticed it in her very first scene, is that they give her a lot of those lines, especially because Pollock is not exactly a talkative person. And she makes you believe every single one because she finds the exact level of theatrical that like that the that woman would be given to such pronouncements mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. the movie isn't mm -hmm. forcing her to except maybe in the one that bella was talking about <laughs> but like that she wants to say it she and she does it even mm -hmm. when she's sort of hyping up pollock to you know friends or yeah. peggy guggenheim or reporters in that she's the one who will place him in history to the point where i really come away from that movie being thinking to myself that he would not have that place in history if it weren't for Lee Krasner. A hundred percent. And I almost wanted the movie where it was literally about her and right. it was called like Krasner and like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was just about her because that, I think that is what the movie is about. And I almost think, I mean, it's also fascinating that we're discussing this and all of the, and it was in the news recently, like because of um, the, yeah, like all of the stuff that she was talking about with Judy Dench and, um oh and yeah everything. no shouldn't we should we should probably i mean <laughs> i think if you're should listening we? to an oscar podcast you must know that you gotta know. Implied <laughs> that judy dench was not happy about that oscar win um but part of that not is because happy. it was a huge surprise nobody was expecting this win at all she hadn't even been nominated for most key awards right but when and you watch them in a row you're like oh no contest I think. Well, that's why, right. I mean, her famous acceptance speech, you know, the what a thrill line is what everybody remembers, <laughs> but because that even comes across so deadpan, what a thrill. What a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that, uh, thank you for watching the tapes, which is just such a funny yes. way to say, like, you know, thank you for watching the movie. Um, because it was one of those movies that had one week release just to qualify, because I hate those in Oscar history, too. Like, I think it's, it's in the same way that supporting and lead it matters to me. I also think you should have to actually come out. You shouldn't be able to do one week and then come out months later. If you get a nomination, I'm like against that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, 
I agree, Vela, that it's not a great movie. And I think that a lot of that comes down to the direction, actually, well, because, that, because yeah. it's it's very, um, it is like the the biopic template. Um, you know, you see all these famous moments in his career and, but it just doesn't have enough like verve, like artistically to be about great artists. And it's yeah. slow. It is slow. Yeah. I like the movie. I liked it better than I did 20 years ago, but it is slow. And I, but I will say, I thought Ed Harris was phenomenal. Just to talk to, to, to speak to the aspect of the Paul thing that did really land with me was um, the dangers of the myopic focus on success and uh, the insatiable quest to be great and stay great. And the, the absolute, like, the terror if you allow that part of yourself to take over your life, that you could destroy, watching someone destroy everything that they loved or truly loved them in their life. And then get to a point where despite all of that, the woman you truly love is still reaching out to you at the end and your shame or guilt or whatever we want to put on him in that moment, he could make the choice to leave the young girl and go find Marsha Gay Harden or find Lee Krasner in Paris or wherever she is, right? Like he could make that choice. She's calling him. But for some reason, he doesn't. He decides to destroy himself because of most likely it seems I'm supposed to assume that's because he he cannot love himself enough if he's no longer the Jackson Pollock that reached his apex. And that's a terrifying, that's terrifying to me, you know, yeah. as someone with ambition, that's terrifying. And uh, I'm, I, uh, I will welcome anything like that. That's a stop sign along the way <laughs> telling me only care about the people that love you, man. You know? Yeah. I, I think that that's actually the, the scene that, that gets mentioned all the time that we touch on briefly, the you need, you need scene. I think one of the strengths of that, of that scene is actually what comes before that famous line of dialogue is when, you know, cause he's talking about wanting a child and she, and then she, she says we're painters and it's this, painters. and it's this, um, it's this understanding that she has that maybe he doesn't because of his ego that their whole life could be totally in obscurity. And she's already made her peace with that probably because she knew that she would not be successful. And so it's like this informing her, imparting her worldview onto the movie. And also what you're saying, Nick, that he doesn't, she sees the danger in like piling too much on top of just the core thing of make art, but he doesn't see that. Well, he doesn't recognize that he'll have responsibility in raising the child. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah and he, he won't does, take He it. thinks he can just do whatever he wants and she will do it for him. Yeah. You know, he'll pick up the pieces. And she's, she's smart enough to understand that there's a breaking point. She makes yeah. their life work. I mean, there's that little moment where she makes breakfast for him at the beginning. That's there very purposefully. It's like it's there to tell you, like, she does all the cooking. She runs his life. She also paints like she does everything. And, um, you know, as we know, movies usually don't show you that kind of stuff, like someone making breakfast. So yeah. <laughs> purposeful and, and there's there's also that line. Is it Jeffrey Tambor's critic character who says it to Pollock where he's like, look, you had like a great multi-year run of incredible acclaim and fame. Most people don't even get that. But it's so 
hurtful to Pollock to imply that he doesn't have that anymore. To me, more than anything, that's why he ends up with Jennifer Connelly's character, because that's somebody who's not going to question him, who's going to look at him with the same starry-eyed adoration that he wants, you know, whereas Marsha Gay Harden is going to call him out on his shit. And that's going to remind him that he ain't shit anymore. Yeah. By every 50-year-old dates a 25-year-old. <laughs> we figured it out. <laughs> Edit that out. Edit that out, please. <laughs> oh, this is so fun to discuss. So we need to wrap up. But one uh, thing we always end with is just a fantasy recasting, just because we acknowledge that, as we actually talked about in this conversation with Billy Crudup and Brad Pitt versus Francis McDormand and Meryl Streep, that if you cast if you make casting changes, it completely changes a role in a movie. So we always end with pick these five women and pick one of them to do one of the other parts. And what do you think it would bring to the part? Or what do you think it would change about it? Ooh, I was, I was, the first thing that came to mind was Marsha Gay Harden doing Julie Walter's part. And like I can that? see, because well, I just when I was watching Julie Walters, I, the 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 word that kept coming to mind is broad. Like I was like, oh, broad has to play it. Like just like a like a earthy woman has to play this part. Like that's that's the only that's the only person I'm gonna buy watching this. And so I was like, I feel like I could see Marsha Gay Harden, like now doing this part, mm. and Billy Elliot. I think it'd be cool. Like funny, to see it. <laughs> the funny thing for me when I was watching Frances McDormand and Almost Famous and being and, and thinking to myself, is she actually miscast in this role? Is thinking that she maybe could have been even better cast as other roles within that movie, not just playing like an adult Penny Lane, which you would totally buy. You would yeah. utterly buy. Oh my God. Laurel Canyon, right? But listen, like Laurel Canyon, the movie. Laurel Canyon essentially yeah. is that. But then honestly, also, and no shade to PSH, who's amazing, but uh, Frances McDormand absolutely could have played Lester Banks in that movie too, you know? Yeah. The thing is, like, Frances McDormand is a little too cool to be square, and that's the thing that made me feel she was yeah, just I ever agree. so slightly, but crucially, miscast in that role. I thought she was playing at it, yeah, for sure. So, so would you put one of these other women in that role? Uh, well, if we're gonna have Kate Hudson... <laughs> And Frances McDormand swap. <laughs> love that. I love it would that. Be interesting. It would I do be interesting. think that Kate Hudson, now Kate Hudson version, playing the mother role, Frances McDormand's role, could be fun. It'd be it would, but, but I would probably run into the exact same thing of when she says, don't do drugs. I think to myself, <laughs> um, yeah. Nick, who do you think? Well, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm trying to find a. I mean, I'm, it maybe is too uh, similar in a way, but like throwing Julie Walters into the chocolat role. Uh, I'm just trying to find it. I'm just trying to look at what else is there. Like there's something about Julie Walters that I did like that. I know that I came down hard on her, but it's, just, you know, I did love most of her performance. What I will say is I do think her bodiness wears on her a little more naturally than Judy Dench. So, you know, I think that that kind of the smoky, element of Julie Walters uh, would really work in Chocolat. Can, can any, do, does anybody have an idea of who on this list would work good in the Pollock rule? Did anybody give a shot at that? Could anybody top Marsha Gay Harden on this list? Does anybody want to try to give somebody else that chance? 
You could absolutely see like Francis McDormand yeah. Francis. doing that, right? I, I mean, think talk Francis, about yeah. points of personality. They both have that for sure. Well, this was such a pleasure. Um, so as we say goodbye, just remind the listeners where they can find you. Um, thanks again to Bella Lavelle. It was a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Um, I'm I'm just my first and last name on Instagram and Twitter. I'm there. And what's your next project that we can watch out for? Um, I think it'll be um, either Mr. Mayor coming back to your screens sometime soon, um, or um, I'm guest starring on a, a new Amazon show called Forget Normal that should be coming out, I think, in the fall. Um, and I'm excited about that. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward. And Nicholas D'Agosto. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute blast. Thank you to everybody for this was a lot of fun. Um, I'm my full name at Twitter and Instagram as well at Nicholas with an H D'Agosto. And um, you can find God and Other Delicacies anywhere, which is my podcast. And I'm doing a small film uh, here in the summer. And I don't know when that will come out. And uh, Eric Bloom. Uh, you can find me on Instagram under the Eric Bloom, and uh, and I I hope to direct my first feature in the fall. Right now, it looks like it might actually go, but it might go like Santa Claus. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, fingers crossed, it has some momentum. So we'll see. Yeah. And uh, finally, Kyle Buchanan. Thank you so much. We've been trying to do this for a long time. I know. I'm I'm so glad we finally did, and especially with the with these uh, panelists and these performances. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Buchanan, and that's my byline at the New York Times. Uh, if you do follow me on Twitter, then when my book is available for pre-order, I will honestly become really annoying about it and probably tweet it out all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're, if you're you interested should. in reading that book, um, I will make it fairly unmissable. I must, that's a, that's a solemn promise. Thank you. What a thrill. Members of the Academy, thank you. <laughs> For taking the time to even view the tape and consider our film.